the expression mob mentality has its origins in sociological thinking, investigation, and research. Today we'll be talking about Gustave Le Bon's The Crowd, Study of the Popular Mind, which has introduced the topic to many a social scientist, anthropologist, political observer, what have you, into the idea that the crowd has a mind of its own, has a kind of a uh, impetus and inspiration, for lack of a better word, to think and behave in ways that the individual would not if they were outside of the influence of the crowd. Welcome to The Truth Perspective, everyone. I'm your host, Elon Martin, and with me in the studio today are Corey Schenk. Hello, everybody. And Harrison Keeley. Hello. And this topic has a lot of implications for the types of social upheaval and developments we've been seeing in the U.S., in the West, and in other places in the world. We have been witnessing SJW crowds. Uh, we have been witnessing conservative or neoconservative crowds in the U.S. convening, uh, cheering on their respective ideologies and thoughts. We have recently been witness to the yellow vest uh, displays in Paris, France. If you haven't yet caught Neil and Joe's program, it is an excellent examination of all of the political and social reasons for these, uh, these protests. So it's a topic that's got quite a number of different implications for the, the types of developments we're seeing. So on that note, uh, we're going to be looking at and picking out passages and discussing those of Laban's The Crowd that give a kind of a, a thorough examination, or as thorough as we can, to the dynamics at play in crowds, what it is about crowds in particular that uh, elicit or appeal to the baser natures of uh, individuals who are uh, enmeshed in the crowd. And... This is early on in the book when he's kind of setting things up for discussion. He says, However, in point of fact, all the world's masters, all of the founders of religions or empires, the apostles of all beliefs, eminent statesmen, and, a, and in a more modest sphere, the mere chiefs of small groups of men have always been unconscious psychologists possessed of an instinctive and often very sure knowledge of the character of crowds. And it is their very accurate knowledge of this character that has enabled them to, do, to so easily establish their mastery. Napoleon had a marvelous insight into the psychology of the masses of the country over which he reigned. But he, at times, completely misunderstood the psychology of crowds belonging to other races. And it is because he thus misunderstood it that he engaged in Spain and notably in Russia in conflicts in which his power received blows which were destined within a brief space of time to ruin it. 
A knowledge of the psychology of crowds is today the last resource of the statesman who wishes not to govern them. That is becoming a very difficult matter, but at any rate, not to be too much governed by them. It is only by obtaining some sort of insight into the psychology of crowds that it can be understood how slight is the action upon them of laws and institutions, how powerless they are to hold any opinions other than those which are imposed upon them, and that it is not with rules based on theories of pure equity that they are to be led, but by seeking what produces an impression on them and what seduces them. For instance, should a legislator wishing to oppose impose a new tax choose that which would be theoretically the most just? By no means. In practice, the most unjust may be the best for the masses. Should it at the same time be the least obvious and apparently the least burdensome, it will be the most easily tolerated. It is for this reason that an indirect tax, however exorbitant it be, will always be accepted by the crowd, because being paid daily in fractions of a farthing on objects of consumption, it will not interfere with the habits of the crowd and will pass unperceived. Replace it by a proportion tax on wages or income of any kind to be paid in a lump sum, and were this new imposition theoretically ten times less burdensome than the other, it would give rise to unanimous protest. This arises from the fact that a sum relatively high, which will appear immense, and will in consequence strike the imagination, has been substituted for the unperceived fractions of a farthing. The new tax would only appear light had it been saved farthing by farthing. By this economic proceeding involves an amount of foresight of which the masses are incapable. So, Early on, Laban is trying to establish uh, the idea that there is a, a great amount of subjectivity uh, that the crowd is subject to, that they're vulnerable to ideas, impressions, imagination that steer them a certain way and that produce in them a kind of a, um, a trigger response to act and think in certain ways. There are portions later on in this earlier part of Laban's book where he discusses a kind of a mass hallucination uh, that exists among crowds, where he cites examples of seamen who have heard dozens of individuals in a shipwreck out in sea kind of lost and rush out to meet this group of distressed seamen in a dinghy and realize that the seamen that they thought that they were rescuing was actually a, uh, a jumble of branches and leaves. And yet all of these individual um, sailors that were observing the, the shipwreck uh, came to realize in an instant that it was something of a hallucination uh, or just a delusion. Hallucination might be a little too strong a word for it. Uh, but the point is made when an idea takes hold in the minds of a crowd or a group of people that are convened together, either because there is a single individual who is um, perhaps pathological, perhaps not, that's prompting a particular perception. This perception spreads very quickly and 
supersedes the uh, the insight and the objectivity and the the kind of common sense and check over emotions that people as individuals would normally have if they were observing an event on their own. So that's a place to start with. Um, it's a very insightful book. Hope all of you get a chance to read it at some point. Um, I think we'll be making some ties today to Lobachowski, Spellbinding, among other things. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so with that said, did you guys have any particular impressions or thoughts while reading it? Yeah, I thought that I was reading a little bit about Gustav Le Bon's life and his um, kind of eclectic research interests. He was into, um, he published papers on physics and sociology, and he even, after he was a soldier uh, during the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, he ended up writing a manual on uh, uh, training soldiers for riding horseback in, in battle. And it was adopted by the the generals, and then he also wrote another manual on the stresses of being a soldier in the army, and that was also uh, favorably reviewed by uh, the different generals. So I thought it was pretty fascinating. His, you know, just the the breadth of you know human nature and of the world that he had access to just through sheer you know research and. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one thing that when he finally turned his attention to uh, sociology and the nature of the crowd, which probably because of the, the revolutionary nature of the time that he was living in um, and the era, that whole epoch of you know, the American Revolution, the French Revolution, you know, and then the Glorious Revolution in England, and people naturally, you know, there were massacres like the Commune Massacre, and there's you know, the rise of socialism. People uh, were saying that you know, this was the age or the era of the crowd. And they inevitably uh, remarked that the crowd was, you know, in, was criminal or uh, there, it was irrational, uh, fundamentally irrational. And he, he came at it, I think, from that perspective, that popular perspective among the elite class who's trying to figure out how to get this rabble mm-hmm. in line in order to have a functioning uh, society again. Mm-hmm. And yet he kind of set the record straight by uh, by coming at it from uh, this this more grounded scientific perspective and mm-hmm. saying, so this is, you know, the crowd has all these elements, but it's it's more than that. Um, you know, these crowds are, you, you have to see it from the psychological, he came at it from the psychological uh, dimension, so that he defined the crowd as like a psychological crowd in, in several places. He, you know, he's, it's not rigorous in his definition. Sometimes he says psychological crowd, sometimes organized crowd and this and that. But when he talks about a crowd, he's talking about that experience that you get that I think can like best be summed up by with like an example, you know, like you're in a subway or something and there's, you know, people traveling, you know, you all on, on a subway and then, um, you know, you're, you're packed together and then all of a sudden, you know, you hear a shot, you know, a shot's fired or something. And now, now all of a sudden, you know, people are screaming, you are a part of the crowd moving. The crowd is moving now. And then you hear somebody make a suggestion, you know, like the, you know, this door, that door is open down there. And then the whole crowd, boom, everyone's moving towards that door. Um, and while you're in that state of mind, you and the crowd are all acting as one school, one flock in order to, you know, it, it, you know, it might seem irrational to outside observers, but you have this 
emotional uh, reaction that is driving you and you can you're driven by the unconscious uh, emotions of of that crowd that's just one example of the kind of crowd that he would discuss because throughout in the final chapters of the book he he outlines um you know that same kind of emotional mentality that not just in you know just a, a crowd of strangers on a subway but that kind of mentality of a crowd of of uh, politicians in an assembly. You know, you get everybody riled up about some emotional thing, and individually, everyone is extremely, you know, rational, intelligent. You know, I went to Harvard, yeah, I'm a lawyer, and I have a successful business. I've written all of these amazing laws. But then once you're in this assembly, it all comes down to just these silly slogans that are getting hurled back and forth. You know, like you're a, uh, you know, you're a libtard or you're this or you're that. Everything gets boiled down to these general uh, platitudes. And, you know, the, uh, you know, what he would say is that basically a, a crowd, everything that a crowd will produce will be inferior to what an individual on their own could produce. So that was his general thought on, on the crowd in general. And he, you know, he analyzed juries through the same lens. Um, and he's always pessimistic. Uh, he, he always comes to the, he comes back to the point that, you know, they say this is the age of the crowd and that they have all these dogmas of the crowd that are the same as the dogmas of the Christian era that we have proven to be false, but they, they fulfill the same purpose. And in point of fact, you know, having a jury, having a parliamentary assembly is better than the magistrate that we had before who could give you who could uh, throw you in prison for just because he doesn't like you or because somebody comes up with some silly silly um uh accusation uh, politically you know a political accusation so i thought that you know he he comes at it with this really rigorous um scientific mindset and even if he didn't set it down a hundred percent perfectly so that everything that he said you know made you know you know sense when was like a fully fledged scientific theory it was still uh it still laid the groundwork for um for social psychology or for crowd psychology for better or for worse because from what it, it seems like a lot of the later more pathological uh individuals politicians used that in order to better manipulate the masses, mm -hmm. which I don't know if they necessarily needed it in the first place, because I get the impression that a lot of these, you know, schizoidal or spellbinder type individuals have this kind of understanding, this basic understanding. But for better or for worse, he popularized it in, in a way, it seems to me similar to the way that Machiavelli uh, sh uh, shone light mm -hmm. on politics in Italy, you know, he shined light on the politics of the age of the crowd and how it, uh, how it should work, how it does work, and how politicians can use the irrationality of the masses for rational mm -hmm. purposes, their own rational purposes. And that's what we see today, I think, very cynically, mm -hmm. um, you know, over and over. But it's just a part of our nature, too. It's part of our hive-like group mentality that sometimes we will lose ourselves you know whether it's in battle or whether it's a for, uh, political cause or a religious cause we'll lose ourselves to the this general will this general mind that you know for will sacrifice our own self-interest for the group interest and unfortunately it seems that a lot of times we're e easily misled on what the group interest really is mm -hmm. 
So that uh, a few things on that. One, just what you just said ties back to, I think we discussed Jonathan Haidt's book and like the, what did he call it? Like the, the hive trigger or the hive switch. Yeah. So basically something that will switch you, switch a group of people into a hive mind and they'll behave kind of as one entity. And uh, like he, at various, at various points in the book, he kind of makes uh, makes the point that crowds aren't all bad, you know, uh, but but then again, most of the stuff that he writes about are, are all seem to be bad things about crowds, and like uh, just every once in a while, he'll he'll throw in a line about maybe a good thing, but he doesn't. He never really expands on the good things. So um, that's kind of uh, I think my one criticism of the book so far is that well, first of all, just him, like he's a really smart guy, and he's kind of a pleasure to read because he's a it's a at least it's a good translation like he was a good writer but he is kind of like enamored with his own rationality and his own genius um which kind of is grating at times um and again that's just a product of well <laughs> to use his own theories you could say that's a product of his own uh his own race you know because he talks about the the importance of or the the influence of race as one of these kind of foundational um um, f- foundational well just one of these foundations that p- that provides um, like the backdrop for for the the, the persuasion uh, that gets um, put into crowds like basically you have like that is the the raw material with which um, like the the movers of crowds work is the like the the, the racial aspects the, the kind of like what he would see as the the kind of shared hereditary features of a group of people and their traditions, their institutions, and their like system of education. Those are all of the um, kind of um, remote, what he calls the remote factors that are that go into making the crowd. But um, so so there's that. But um, you did say Corey that he kind of I haven't read this part, but did he actually say like kind of like uh, well paraphrased or not that the individual is always can always come up with a better solution than the crowd or yeah that was okay. that was what he so, said yeah. so what about the the example that you gave right after that of the magistrate who gives this arbitrary decision that the uh, you know the jury actually does a better job of well, that, <laughs> that's a good that's okay a good so point. so yeah so that would be kind of maybe one of another one of my criticisms of him is that like he's he he's maybe contradictory at times. So when he, he is, so when he gets he gets into one idea and he really analyzes it and then kind of forgets about it like a, a bit further on in the book, which I mean, it's a well um, maybe in more general terms. I think the the problem with uh, with him is that he will often speak in absolutes about something. Like very often, say, "Oh, this is always the case," and then he doesn't really back it up. And I think that's kind of just a product of his time and place and the, you know, the, the kind of intellectual class that he came came from. It's like, they hadn't really um, gotten to the point where like academics are today, but really hedging their language and, you know, saying, Oh, well, this seems to be the case. And, you know, they're, uh, he's a lot less careful with his phrasing than, uh, than maybe he would have been today. Well, and I think it's also because he was seeing the magistrate as part of a cast, which is in itself a, an own, its own crowd. Okay. So yeah. that's like, but I think that he says the um, that the crowd of jurors is always open to conviction, whereas the cast never is. Mm. The cast crowd is never going to be open to, you know, it's always it's going to have its own self-interest at heart. Mm-hmm. That's what I believe what he said. Well, so he he does contradict himself quite a bit actually and and early on at one point he he says how books on history 
And there could be something, you know, kind of lost in the translation of it. That's certainly a possibility too. But in one sentence, he says, you know, books in hist of, of history are basically useless. You know, they they might observe the facts, you know, that a naturalist would uh, would observe uh, with some ob objectivity. And then later, he says, oh, we must rely utterly on the on the great literary works of you know of history and statues and and art to uh, to give us what was true about the time. So um, you kind of you kind of forgive him that and keep going with it a little bit. Yeah, um, his own like eccentricities. It, it is. Out. That's a good way to describe it. He's a little bit of an eccentric. But um, one of the things that really struck me while reading it is that he's this book. What it came out in like the eighteen nineties. Mm -hmm. um, so it's over. It's like over one hundred and twenty years old. And um, but so much of it was still relevant today. Um, so much of it, well, at various times, he seemed to even predict a lot of the stuff that happened in the, in the 20th century. And it really is um, one of the kind of, perhaps one of the first books, I don't know about books previous, um, you know, maybe Machiavelli, Machiavelli and Sun Tzu, but like of persuasion, books of persuasion um, that you'd that you'd be familiar with. There's ideas in here that you'd be familiar with, like, you know, if you're following Scott Adams today or something, you know, the people talking about persuasion techniques and things like that, because he gets, he gets into a lot of that, especially in the, like the middle of the section of the book where he's talking about um, leaders of crowds and the means they use to um, manipulate crowds. Um, well, and one, one other point maybe before I get into some of those specifics is that he, um, does point out, like, you can tell he's writing from a certain class, too, right? Kind of like the, the ruling educated class, the, the kind of intelligentsia. And that, um, so at various times he says that, uh, well, given the nature of crowds, and I'd agree with this, kind of like from a Machiavellian, just strictly pragmatic, like, practical approach, um, that given the nature of crowds, it is the, like, the statesman's duty to make use of uh, of the predilections of crowds and also like to manipulate them in certain ways. So he basically says that it's the state, the statements, the statesman's job to, for instance, um, present certain things um, in such a way like, oh, well, an example would be to change the language. If the, if the crowd has um, come to associate certain words with like negative reactions if, if they have negative feelings towards certain words and ideas then it's the statement's the statesman's job to come up with a new word that keeps the institution in place but removes the kind of negative associations in the crowd themselves so basically to to take that reaction into account and then just kind of do a little like parlor game trick where you pretend to replace that negative thing, but it's, it essentially stays the same and just the name changes. And he points out that at the same time, by that, by that same logic, it's very easy to cover over, like, he doesn't use the word atrocities, but um, <clears throat> it could be atrocities or just something that, you know, people generally, gen generally don't like, and to cover those over with words like basically euphemisms, basically just pointing out that the words you use can, can go either way and can, can be used to your purposes. Um, but maybe to get into the, to the means, like the, the one that, the, the classic one that uh, Scott Adams talks about, of course, is like pacing and leading. And so he talks about the, well, I think I've, I've got a quote here for um, how he actually does that. He writes that the, um, let's see if I can find this repetition. Well, f maybe before that one, um, he's got basically two, two main means of, 
of persuading crowds. The first is to lead by example, essentially. He says that's the best way to persuade, but that the um, the other one, which isn't as effective, but is which can be as effective, just given a longer time period, like you have to be you have to do this for longer, is to use um, affirmation, repetition, and contagion. So the affirmation is just the bald statement of fact. Um, without any reasoning or logic, it's just you make a bold assertion, basically. Mm -hmm. And then repetition, you do it over and over and over, to the point where that gets fixed in the minds of the, people's, of the people hearing them, and that's basically the principle that's used in advertising today, and it's been used for like 100 years. And then comes the contagion, which goes back to the, the show we did on social contagion, because he's essentially talking about just that idea, the fact that once these ideas become permeated, they become contagious. And... The funny thing that he points out is that, well, according, uh, like in his opinion, that contagion then inevitably spreads to the higher class. So he, he gives this kind of um, funny circle of contagion where, like, the, the intelligent or the intelligentsia, the like, educated class will come up with an idea or, like, a philosophy, and then it will be distorted and, like, um, it'll be, mis get misshapen as it becomes adopted by members of the crowd, so they'll have like a caricaturized version of the original philosophy, and then that caricature will then infect that same class that produced the, the idea in the first place till the point where the entire kind of society is infected with this um, like perverted version of the original idea, and that that is the, like the direction that it goes in. And I was thinking about um, just how that might play out um, and how it might have played out in our times, like recently, because he he basically says that when something like this happens, that a um, that how does he uses a certain word for it? That there is a um, a current of opinion is formed, and the powerful mechanism of contagion intervenes. Ideas, sentiments, emotions, and beliefs possess in crowds a contagious power as intense of that of as intense as that of microbes. And I just thought of the kind of the anti-Russian sentiment in the States is just mm -hmm. one. Anti-Trump is, is another. It's like this, it's this um, irrational just belief that is pervasive and that everyone believes. And it is, it just, it's self-reinforcing and it, it forms this like feedback mechanism where no dissenting opinion can even get a voice in because it's this monolithic thing Whereas, like, if you go to another country, if you go to Russia, for instance, or you go, if you go to Syria, it's the total opposite in you know in their views of Russia naturally. Um, but there is, but it, it like you can see how it formed, right? Because you can see the, the like the historical um, like enmity between the U.S. and Russia that forms like this back this background of like uh, of potential negative sentiment towards like an entire country, and then. Um, and then that's very easily manipulatable or usable by uh, like a certain elite. Um, in this case, it's like the again the intelligentsia, the media, the like um, the class, the intelligent or the educated class, the political class. They can then use this, and then it, it and then they event they eventually believe it themselves if they didn't to begin with. To the point where they're all totally convinced of this um, you know this Russian menace that doesn't in fact exist. And yet it is, you know, so it's like inescapable. Um, yeah, and that first one, maybe, what was the first one I had? It was basically, um, 
well, maybe if I find it, I've got like a you know pages of quotes from it, but I, it wasn't in the section I thought it was. Basically, the um, um, pacing and leading is what he describes at another point. Basically, you have to um, you have to agree with the crowd, give the impression of agreeing with the crowd, so that they believe that you believe what they believe, and then you can sl- slowly move them um, only after that fact. And he gives an, a, an example that was really good because he said that uh, he observed this personally. I'll just read it. My first observations with regard to the art of impressing crowds and touching the slight assistance to be derived in this connection uh, from the rules of logic date back to the siege of Paris, to the day when I saw conducted at the Louvre, where the government was then sitting, Marshal V, whom a furious crowd asserted they had surprised in the act of taking the plans of the fortifications to sell them to the Prussians. A member of the government, G.P., a very celebrated orator, came out to harangue the crowd, which was demanding the immediate execution of the prisoner. I had expected that the speaker would point out the absurdity of the accusation by remarking that the accused marshal was positively one of those who had constructed the fortifications, the plan of which, moreover, was on sale at every bookseller's. To my immense stupefaction, I was very young then, the speech was on quite different lines. Justice shall be done, explained the orator, advancing towards the prisoner, and pitiless justice. Let the government of the national defense conclude your inquiry. In the meantime, we will keep the prisoner in custody. At once calmed by this apparent concession, the crowd broke up, and about a quarter of an hour later, the marshal was able to return home. He would infallibly have been torn in pieces had the speaker treated the infuriated crowd to the logical arguments that my extreme youth induced me to consider as very convincing. So this is where he talks about that, the persuasion technique. He says it's necessary, first of all, to thoroughly comprehend the sentiments by which the crowd is animated, to pretend to share these sentiments, then to endeavor to modify them by calling up, by means of rudimentary associations, certain eminently suggestible or suggestive notions, to be capable, if need be, of going back to the point of view from which a start was made, and above all, to divine from the instant to divine from instant to instant the sentiments to which one's discourse is giving birth. So basically, it is a skill um, to be developed, or a skill that may that someone may naturally have, and that this. So, as a young man observing this instance of the crowd calling for this this man's execution, convinced of his guilt when he was obviously not guilty. Mm-hmm. The, the solution is not to use reason, not to say, oh, well, here, uh, let me make the case for this man's innocence, because it won't work. So you, he, so this guy with a little bit more experience, this GP, basically had to say, yes, we totally agree this man is guilty and we're going to execute him, just leave it to us. And then it's like, okay, phew, you know, we got rid of him. But uh, it, so it just shows, well, it shows the, ne- the necessity of a knowledge of crowds in order to... Um, to have an effect in the world to be successful because if you if if that guy like like a young Gustave Le Bon had locked, lacked that knowledge this guy would have been torn apart in the streets and that is like a recurring uh, a recurring feature of crowds going back you know through all human history I'm reminded of like um, when Julius Caesar was assassinated and the crowds tore apart this one guy who they thought was one of the assassins, and he was just a guy with the same name as one of the assassins, and they tore him apart, like, literally in the streets. And there are stories like that for, for you know, all of recorded human history. And so how do you deal with that? Well, you have, you have to know how to deal with crowds. You have to, you have to put on an act.
right? This guy had to lie, pretend that he agreed with them in order to save this guy's life. Yeah, he uh, in the book he t- he talks about the criminality of crowds in that exact way. He discusses the um, how a crowd could get so animated, uh, and he discusses a specific example, but I can't remember it off the top of my head. But it's a the a crowd could get so animated, and then um, you know they decide, well, this guy has to die, you know, because he's an evil person. And then, you know, the, everyone feels like they are doing this great deed. You know, they're, they're swept away with this sense of justice and of bringing justice to the, you know, to, the, to this accused man. And then one of them, who was a, a cook, uh, he went up and he sliced him up and killed him. And he said, now the actions of the crowd are, are criminal. And he was discussing the fact that the legal system at the time was trying to decide who do you designate as the guilty party? Because the whole crowd was a, mm-hmm. a party to this crime. Mm-hmm. But the man who did it, you know, everyone was cheering him on. They were like, you know, he was a hero. And in his, in, you know, in his experience, you know, he went home and he slept wonderfully that night. He felt like an absolute hero, whereas in the end, they, they just killed some random man. Mm-hmm. Well, there's something to be said for how emboldened people feel um, within the crowd. Uh, how how they feel like they're almost impossible to stop, and by by the very you know fact that they're part of this larger mind, uh, they they have this they've been bestowed bestowed this kind of righteous uh, indignation and, and permissive uh, permissiveness to act in any way that they uh, that they feel is necessary in the moment, um, but I. I was reminded, uh, Harrison, a, a moment ago about another story of a crowd that was listening to a very young politician in Vienna in the early 1920s. Um, and this, this young politician was um, uh, going on about the, uh, the virtues of, of nationalism and uh, Arianism, among other things. And um, what an older gentleman did in, in listening to him uh, and seeing through a lot of his uh, his biases was to confront the speaker, and uh, and call him out on on what was a lot of uh, a lot of kind of paramoralistic, um, you know, illogical statements that were that were drawing in. And did he point out all of the logical inconsistencies <laughs> and how his arguments were wrong? And he he did some of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the and crowd, did he succeed? He did succeed. Uh, he was able to use reason. Uh, as the story goes, um, the young, the young uh, self-professed politician was uh, Adolf Hitler, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Hitler basically got his uh, butt handed to him on a plate by uh, by just this this normal guy who came up to the scene and and called him out on stuff. Now, what's so interesting about that is only ten or fifteen years later, Hitler, um, who was who's had knowledge of the crowd this this work. Mm-hmm. Uh, some say he's alluded to it in Mein Kampf, um, had developed the psychological knowledge of his people and was able to stir them up in a fervor and frenzy and hysteria unlike a uh, few we've ever seen in, in modern history. Um, and he was able to do this by, you know, as you were saying earlier, repetition and an appeal to the emotions, where he basically... Uh, I wouldn't say single-handedly because he had a network of of people who had already bought into his shtick, Uh, but he was able to basically hypnotize and mobilize 
much of Germany into a mass, violent, reactive, emotional crowd. Um, if you if you ever see his Triumph of the Will by Lenny Reifenstahl and and some of the other documentary footage of the man, uh, he he was speaking before tens of thousands of individuals uh, who were in an absolute thrall. So um, that's that's another. Uh, dimension to this that you were alluding to earlier, Corey. That this, you know, this analysis by Lebon can go either way. Uh, you had Hitler, Mussolini. You had Edward Bernays, who is like the father of marketing and advertising and propaganda in uh, in the 21st century in the U.S. Using all of this kind of knowledge, this the the psychological knowledge of the crowd. Uh, towards their own ends. Um, and uh, I, I guess now one of the questions remains, you know, we, we've seen the negative part of it, but can we, can we look at all of this in a constructive way? Can we, can we at least start out by identifying ourselves and how we might act crowd-like uh, and keep ourselves out of the crowd that is reactive, that is um, that is dangerous, that is acting emotionally to certain things. Um, so I guess one of the values of the book is, is in the kind of emotional distance uh, we, and, and critical distance we want to work on within ourselves to, uh, to stay out of the crowd, to not get worked up in, into any kind of um, confluence or fervor towards a certain objective. You know, and it's interesting because in the book, uh, he writes that acquisition of a solidly constituted collective spirit frees us from the unreflecting power of, of crowds, which is interesting to me because you'd think that it's, you know, the individual, you, you, you have to strengthen your individual spirit. But what, what he, he seems to think that it's actually the strength of the race. And by that, he means more of like mental than I think hereditary um, things like traditions, like you're discussing earlier, um, the strength of the traditions, the strength of all of these other things that are, you know, passed down to you generation after generation, the strength of those are what protect us from the from descending into these crazy crowds. Because according to his, he has kind of a strange view of history, right? He has, well, it's characteristic of that time, but he, he sees the, the evolution of the race, of, of all races and civilization as being once just a multitude of peoples. And then they got together, a chief would get people together and then they would over time and, you know, just environment shared identity, they would develop a unique idea of what constituted their group, mm-hmm. uh, ego, you know, their group idea. And then after that, they would pass from just being a crowd to being something a little bit more civilized. And then as that uh, process continued, as this idea became more fleshed out and they became more uh, advanced uh, technologically or socially, that then they would advance to the level of civilization. And that it's only when crowds break out, you know, to him, it's because there's been this collapse of, Mm -hmm. of order which, you know, I think that that's, that seems to me as be, being fairly logical and it seems, doesn't seem like a too 
too big of a leap to see it in that way. But um, it reminds me of what Jordan Peterson had said about having to discover your uh, father at the you know bottom of the sea, or having to go and rediscover your father, and mm-hmm. that uh, th- that that is one of the duties that we have to do in order to keep this to keep the the dangerous and inferior characteristics of the crowd at bay is to to flesh out and to elucidate and to find the truth about our traditions to be stay connected to the the struggles of the past you know because the crowds the negative and inferior characteristics of of the crowds in the past um you know he talks about the commune massacres and the fact that people would you know at one point they all got together and just started murdering prisoners and you know they just went crazy Mm -hmm. but you know there are positive characteristics of crowds that you know obviously america is based on that positive idea of, of revolution in france that there is an idea inherent in crowds that you can hear even today and when you see the protests in paris you can hear it and you can see it you can feel that voice of this greater idea for for justice and for freedom for for liberty and fraternity um that we would say uh, are you know foundational to our uh, to our identity that are positive contributions of crowd like you know chaotic uh, behavior, and that it's by um, is by strengthening that i you know that idea that central idea that we that we protect ourselves from the other negative characteristics. Well, that that kind of reminded me of um, there were some quotes about the recent uh, Yellow Vest revolt in Paris. And um, I'll just read this. It says, the revolt is not just about the gas prices. It's a general revolt against the policy of the government. Jean Brickmont, a French writer and political commentator, told RT, there's not much that French authorities could do to relieve people's worries and diffuse tensions, he said, as Paris, quote, has to obey the orders from the European Commission, end quote. And then he goes on to say, I think Macron doesn't realize the depth of the crisis. There's not much he can do about it. He's not a statesman. He's a banker. He's been put in that position and thinks that he has solution to everything in his head. I think he's extremely arrogant, extremely self-centered, extremely detached from reality. In the meantime, officials around Macron are, quote unquote, incompetent. I'm really scared for France. And, you know, the, the problem there is not only has Macron not taken into account the very basic kind of uh, life-sustaining um, policies that would help people and on which he ran for office, but he has absolutely no uh, connection, no, no orating ability, no, uh, no feeling for the people and their concerns. He doesn't even make a uh, a kind of a, a very basic appeal uh, to people. You know, his response to these recent um, to these recent events has been to come out and say we're going to change the world via technology that would uh, address climate change. I mean, he's so out of touch. So this is obviously a, a figure that has no psychological knowledge of of the crowd that he's dealing with. And with every week that passes since this uh, yellow vest revolt in Paris, which is which is pretty big, um, he just proves himself even you know even more 
uh, of a of an incompetent, even more out of touch, even even uh, less um, able to connect with people and and use crowd psychology. Which is really interesting because that upper crust that he comes from, like Harrison was saying earlier, that is the the same class of people who you know early in the beginning of the the twentieth century who was creating this system of manipulating mass opinion in order to, you know, create their own world. And now we're at that point where they seemed this idea for some reason has been warped so completely that they think they've already, they can just pronounce their own world. You know, we're just going to create with technology and you have to, you know, you have to get, you know, go along on the ride because that's your duty. You're just going to have to suffer and, and ride bicycles to work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's really, it's fascinating. The, the degree of disconnect I think that these politicians have from the very real like social psychology that was at the root of, you know, their elite liberal uh, visions of the past. And, you know, it's radically different than an an intelligent statesman's perception of of human nature. I was reading um, about John Adams and back in 1770, he was talking about revolts and mobs and, and he said that there were church quakes and state quakes in the moral and political world, as well as earthquakes, storms, and tempests in the physical. So back Back in the day, you know, especially in the, for the American found, uh, uh, elite, you know, they they saw that having mobs and having you know revolution and all that kind of stuff was not something that you could do away with. It was it was a part of nature, and I think for the elite back then, they I mean, for and still now, they saw the the crowd, the masses, as just another aspect of nature. You know, something that they had to live with. And in, that's true to some extent. You know, people are irrational. The crowd is irrational. It is always striving for something. But, you know, it can, you know, go out of, uh, get out of hand and do nasty things if you treat it wrong. And if you want to have this soci- the society that you, sta- that you say you want to have, then you have to treat the crowd with the respect that it's deserved. Otherwise, it's a tiger. And it'll turn around and it'll kill you. It'll destroy everything. Mm-hmm. Well, that's one of the one of the points he makes later in the book is that he's talking about his own time, and he said in his own time, the political class had lost the ability to control the crowd, it lost the ability to persuade or convince the crowd, and he even predicted um, with the rise of newspapers that it would be impossible to um, to create. Well, it, it would be impossible to do so in the future either because of this because of the newspapers, because um, given like the mass media being introduced at the time, there, there were such, uh, such a, there was such a variety of opinions that they kind of canceled each other out. There was no monolithic way of instituting a, a total belief system that applied to everyone that the entire crowd, the entire uh, society could um, get behind and that it would cause this kind of fractiousness and this, uh, like these divisions um, that couldn't be controlled just because there were so many opinions battling back and forth. And so um, he basically, uh, you know, I think he was kind of saying that, um, well, he, and he wasn't even blaming the, like, the ruling class. He just said it wasn't an, an environment conducive for, like, adequate persuasion of crowds, which I thought was kind of interesting um, because he, I, I think he was, I don't think he was totally right, 
Um, because like, as we've seen, like, you know, even with Bernays and with, um, just the, like the manipulation of media nowadays, you see, you see that people have still been able to get away with it. They've still learned to use that medium towards that end. But at the same time, I think he's got a point because if you look at, um, the political realities of today, um, you can't convince everyone of everything, um, or anything essentially there, there will always be, con- uh, competing, um, opinions and interests within the class, and that now has to be managed. So, if you look at issues like divisive issues, you know, like abortion and immigration and things like that, um, his description is actually um, actually really applies to modern day politics. Um, he essentially said that, um, like statesmen in his day, which applies to statements in you know in our day, no longer move the crowd, but they themselves are moved by the crowd. They're basically, uh, and that's the way it works today. Politicians don't like create policies and then persuade the the people to um, to adopt them. They have like um, pull they like the what they call like I don't, well I don't know if they call it like scientific polling, but they basically poll their constituents to get an idea of where the the common um, like opinions are, and then they they build their policies around their constituencies. Trial balloons. That yeah. Sort of thing. Yeah. So they they say, okay, well, it looks like you know, out of our crowd, you know, like fifty eight percent of people believe this, so that's what we're going to put on our next policy paper, you know, and our on our platform for the next election, um, because they're kind of at the at the mercy of the crowd, as as opposed to like for Laban, that's a, a total like bastardization of the way society should be. It should be the ruling class that decides the policies and then influences the people to get behind them. Um, let me. You could probably say that that's one of the biggest crises in you know modern Western civilization, and you know at least politically, is just the fact that politics is so inauthentic. People know it. You know they mm-hmm. say politics is corrupt. They all know politicians are corrupt, but at the core of it, they know that they're just being pandered to. You know that everyone's just pandering all the time, and that nothing ever nothing ever changes they you know that's the bottom line there and also probably why trump's so popular because he came out and he bucked so much public opinion people like oh at least if he's lying he's you know lying to my face Mm -hmm. (laughs) but but in large uh in large cases he wasn't lying and and he understood that he needed to you know make dozens of trips around the country and speak to people directly and to engage them uh with with ideas that were more or less exactly you know what they were concerned with um he knew what they were he found out what they were went to those places that uh, the the clinton camp took for granted um and he worked it and he worked it and he worked it and and he also i mean in his crude manner he was someone people were able to identify with he he under he understood the psychology of the crowd in a way that Hillary Clinton did not because she's so inauthentic. Yes, he had he spoke to them and he had prestige. He had sufficient prestige, wealth. You know, he was a, a reality TV star. People people knew that he was uh, that he had power, and that's something that uh, Lebon talks about is that people don't vote their own you know their own kind into office they're not going to vote the you know the the cook or anything like that into office because they don't the the cook or you know one of us doesn't carry the same amount of prestige right and the greater the prestige the more of the more power that that individual has over the crowd mm-hmm. and they become just like clay in the in the person's hand yeah he talks about that as being one of the defining characteristics of of modern politics too mm-hmm. 
Well, I'll read some quotes on his section on leaders because I thought that was really insightful and uh, we can get into a few connections from them. He writes that the leader has most often started as one of the led. He has himself been hypnotized by the idea whose apostle he has since become. It has taken possession of him to such a degree that everything outside it vanishes and that every contrary opinion appears to him an error or a superstition. An example in point is Robespierre, hypnotized by the philosophical ideas of Rousseau and employing the methods of the Inquisition to propagate them. The, the leaders we speak of are more frequently men of action than thinkers. They are not gifted with keen foresight, nor could they be, as this quality generally conduces to doubt and inactivity. They are especially recruited from the ranks of those morbidly nervous, excitable, half-deranged persons who are bordering on madness. <laughs> However absurd may be the idea they uphold or the goal they pursue, their convictions are so strong that all reasoning is lost upon them. Contempt and persecution do not affect them or only serve to excite them more. So this would be the category of spellbinders from, um, from Lobachevsky, basically. Lobachevsky would call them either paranoid or... Um, you know, basically with some frontal brain damage, they, they are the fanatics. They are the true believers, and um, they are um, so they have so much um, like self-importance and egotism that they believe they are right no matter what, and nothing can change their mind. So these are these are the real fanatics that 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 are the essential like first step in like what we were describing last week in like the the growth of of a pathocracy. The idea, the ideology needs true believers to act as these lightning rods and like you know points of attraction, um, attractors for the crowd to to rally around. And then he talks about a second group of leaders. Um, these leaders are often more subtle rhetoricians, um, seeking only their. So these these are kind of like just um, like the politicians, the the mainstream politicians, like not the the rabble rousing like leaders of crowds. These would be like the you know your senators and congressmen and people like that. Um, seeking only their so these leaders are often subtle rhetoricians seeking only their own personal interest and endeavoring to persuade by flattering base instincts they uh, the influence they can assert in this manner may be very great but it is always ephemeral the second category of leaders that of men okay so uh, another distinction he makes is between leaders who um, are like you know matches they or you know like um um, or like a gasoline fire, like they're they're really really bright and fiery for a, a bit, but then they lose all steam and kind of die out. And he says, he basically, com he says that you can then find them like totally like uh, dissolute and and like you know fall into pieces and they can't keep their lives together and basically they don't clean their rooms and stuff like that. Like that's what the these people that people rallied around it for this brief period and who were great leaders are actually just kind of like shells of human beings. Um, but he says that there's a second category of leaders. Um, that of men of enduring strength of will. Um, they have, in spite of a less brilliant aspect, a much more considerable influence. In this category are to be found the true founders of religions and great undertakings. St. Paul, Muhammad, Christopher Columbus, and de Lesseps, for example. Whether they be intelligent or narrow-minded is of no importance. The world belongs to them. The persistent will force they possess is an immensely rare and immensely powerful faculty to which everything yields. What a strong and continuous will is capable of is not always properly appreciated. Nothing resists it, neither nature, gods, nor man. So here, um, he would have, 
Well, he seems to have a great kind of like admiration for like the great leaders of the past. Like he, you, you can see it in, in his writing that he has, that he does admire these old, like the, these people from history. Like he talks about Alexander and Julius Caesar and, uh, you know, uh, St. Paul and Napoleon. Um, but at the same time, he, he still has, the, he, he still kind of has a, um, um, a kind of, attitude towards all these ideas like basically he'll write off all the religious ideas for instance you know as just mere illusions and like you know superstitions um so he seems like he only really admires the 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 prestige or like the 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 skill that these people had um that's kind of unexplainable whereas you can see maybe we can make a distinction like try to have like a multi-level approach here to look at like the great um uh, the great historical personalities and that just like crowds may have positive and negative aspects, that maybe you can have a positive or a negative like crowd leader. And I think we like he almost does that in his description of like the different types of leaders, um, but he doesn't quite go there or quite you know explain it that well. So it may be well. It is a fact that certain people do have this kind of personal like charisma and magnetism about them. Um, especially like he has some great examples of from Napoleon. Like Napoleon really was um, like he did have a presence. And he describes how, um, you know, I don't know much like French history, so I'm going to get these details wrong, but the essential idea was like, like um, Napoleon had been called in, like he was a general and he was called in to basically give orders to these other like military men, like experienced, like hardcore military men with, uh, you know, like good histories and, and like feats behind, feats behind their names and things like that. And so this like little pipsqueak was going to come in and tell them what to do. And so he says that, um, you know, so Napoleon shows up to give them their orders, and first he makes them wait a bit, and then, like, he walks in, and he just tells them, okay, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, you're going to do this, and then he walks out, and he says that those, like, generals at the time were just, like, he had he had this effect on them that they were totally in awe of him. Like, he came into the room, and he commanded them, and he had this presence that they totally weren't expecting. They were expecting, like, they already had a negative opinion of him. They were already going to, like, planning to... Um, um, like kind of you know maybe laugh behind his back or you know you know basically be kind of jerks to him. But he like they were to it was totally unexpected. He came in. He just had this presence that totally converted them, and uh, and had this strange like mystical hypnotic effect on them. And you see that for example like also with Gurdjieff, we you hear stories about him where people like in his presence were just kind of like they lose they lose their critical faculties because there's just something about this person that has just, just kind of radiates out of them and um you can ascribe that to to you know various different people it's like this personal charisma mm -hmm. he calls it prestige um and he writes on that that the the thing possessing prestige and this could be a person an idea or like a thing um is immediately imitated in consequence of contagion and forces an entire generation to adopt certain modes of feelings and of giving expression to its thought. So these like um, things with prestige act as like these attractors and act as the um, the kind of motivating thing for a crowd. They pr provide the impetus and they provide the model. So then it becomes like a question of what is the nature of that model? Is it like a positive or a negative model? Um, because he says also, ill treat men as you will, massacre them by millions be the cause of invasion upon invasion. All is permitted you if you, per, if you possess prestige in a sufficient degree and the talent necessary to uphold it. Now, so Laban is kind of, um, 
I just like you get the impression reading this that he's not like endorsing this, right? He's not saying that invasion upon invasion and massacring millions is a good thing. He's just pointing out the like that it's possible with prestige, right? So then you get people like you know Hitler and Mussolini and all, all the people who have read this and be, and who are like, that's a great idea, you know, yeah. I, I could do that. So kind of like those memes going around saying like 1984 was not an instruction manual. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with the crowd, right? So people read read this and, and like, oh wow, that's a that's actually a great idea. Well, there there is a a kind of a positive side to this as well, and um, it reminds me a bit of uh, John F. Kennedy and and his mm-hmm. charisma and his leadership skills, and the types of things that he was saying to people that um, that brought out the, the very best ideals and um, and in a, in an attempt to make them practical, instilled values in people that had them. Uh, I wouldn't say enthralled, but but certainly uh, to a large extent in the U.S. on his side and rooting for him, uh, which is a part of what made his uh, his assassin the assassination of JFK such a profoundly traumatic experience for so many. Um, Laban says that it all depends on the nature of the suggestion to which the crowd is exposed. Which, uh, which does suggest this kind of agnostic ability for leaders to, to sway a crowd and to uh, create this kind of imagery, because that's, that's what he says the crowd is most susceptible to, uh, or one of the things that, that creates in them uh, these, these associations uh, that, that kind of simplify an idea and get people on its side. So it seems like a kind of, um, you know, this is... This is something that uh, all of this information is agnostic. It, it could be used for evil purposes, or it could it could be used to move people in such a direction, uh, even if it is um, through an appeal to their emotions uh, in in a positive uh, in a positive direction. Um, well, I, yeah, I think that we can see that a definite. Uh, dichotomy there just in today's politics with the you know this whole social justice warrior movement versus the make america great again movement you know i'm not i'm not a hundred percent sure that uh Lebon is is correct when he says that as soon as you join a crowd you lose your your critical faculties you become a completely irrational person i i wonder if it's more like you the kind of uh, crowd that you join is based on what critical faculties you had in the first place. So that if you're going to join this, you know, a crazy, you know, hysterical crowd, it's because you're a relatively crazy and hysterical person. Whereas if you're going to go to a crowd that um, conducts itself in a more rational way, that you're going to be a more a rational person. Now, when it gets down to it, and the you know the the the, the fire is up, and you know everybody's going crazy, and you're tearing down the, um, you know the buildings or whatever. Now that at that point, obviously, you are behaving somewhat irrationally. But what you're doing it for, right? What the aim of uh, what the the guiding force behind this? You can't say that it's completely irrational, as Jonathan Haidt would say. It, it's a it's rational on a group level. So that when you tear down a tyranny and you're doing it, um, you're, and you're, you're, you might look like you're in a frenzy, or people look like they're in a frenzy, but they're doing it with, with their you know, critical faculties. They're doing it like, a, like soldiers who would go to battle against a foe to protect their homeland. You know, they're, they're doing it with a certain amount of rationality, even if it entails 
these, you know, this uh, highly emotionally charged uh, state of mind. Well, that, that reminds me quite a bit of uh, the novel Germinal by Emile Zola, uh, another Frenchman um, who was a writer in the 1900s, if, uh, if that's correct, I think it is. Uh, and basically it was describing in some detail the plight of uh, coal miners um, in, in France and who were uh, massively exploited, uh, who had just enough rations, basically slave rations, food were were indentured to the owners of the mines and who lived miserable existences so uh he really had the um it seems to me i mean i'm obviously i i have a i wasn't there but it seems that there was a very authentic um kind of understanding of uh their experience collectively and individually that um that caused them a desire to revolt collectively. Uh, so here are a couple of quotes from Germinal that I think kind of really get into that and, and touch the pulse of, of what they were experiencing. Zola writes, they spoke one after the other in a despairing voice, giving expression to their complaints. The workers could not hold out. The revolution had only aggravated their wretchedness. Only the bourgeois had grown fat since 89, so greedily that they had not even left the bottom of the plates to lick. Who could say that the workers had had their reasonable share in the extraordinary increase of wealth and comfort during the last hundred years? They had made fun of them by declaring them free. Yes, free to serve, a freedom of which they fully avail themselves. It put no bread into your cupboard to go and vote for fine fellows who went away and enjoyed themselves, thinking no more of the wretched voters than of their old boots. No, one or another, it would have to come to an end, either quietly by laws, by an understanding and good fellowship, or like savages, by burning everything and devouring one another. Even if they never saw it, their children would certainly see it for the century could not come to an end without another revolution, that of the workers this time, a general hustling which would cleanse society from top to bottom and rebuild it with more cleanliness and justice. And this is one other quote. It was the red vision of the revolution, which would one day inevitably carry them all away on some bloody evening at the end of the century. Yes, some evening the people, unbridled at last, would thus gallop along the roads, making the blood of the middle class flow, parading severed heads and sprinkling gold from disemboweled coffers. The women would yell, the men would have those wolf-like jaws open to bite. Yes, the same rags, the same thunder of great sabbats, the same terrible troop, with dirty skins and tainted breath, sweeping away the old world beneath an overflowing flood of barbarians. So, you know, like you were saying, Corey, there is this kind of uh, violent, irrational, brutal element to, uh, to the crowd that can get riled up. And at the same time, it, it's, it's challenging to, um, to, to challenge the sentiment when, when, you, when you do have a people who are legitimately being uh, deprived of very basic um, services from individuals that they've put their trust and their faith in uh, for a very long time. Um, 
and I, I don't think we're, you know, it's, it's a very difficult thing to take a position on because uh, obviously we, you know, we do uh, support rational thinking and critical distance and, and behaving in ways that, that, that aren't reactive and violent. Um, at the same time, it's, it's something, you know, you can't, not that it, it's reached the same degree, uh, but you can't blame these yellow vests in, in Paris for their response. It seems that they, are, they have finally had enough, that it's, it's such an obvious offense to them that, uh, that the person calling the shots and the government that's calling the shots and, and how they live day to day does not give a, a flying fig for their, for their well-being. Yeah, and at the end of the day, it seems like it's usually those pathological, um, the very you know small minority of the population who gets everybody riled up in such a way, and then they get to take advantage of it when everything goes to pop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe I want to come back to something you'd said, Corey, about the like the nature. It's kind of like your personal nature that determines the kind of group that you will join. And I think there's some truth to that, but at the same time, like you brought up the the example of when the fire starts, right? Then uh, mm-hmm the kind of hive mind takes over. And I think the, one of the important things to maybe keep in mind is just how powerful the the crowd mentality can be even on, like, even if you are a relatively, you know, self-aware and, um, you know, self-controlled individual, that there are circumstances that you find yourself in where you will even shock yourself about, you know, what you're capable of in a certain group situation. And and that just comes down to, like, conformity and peer pressure because you just look at all the studies, you know, all the psychological studies from the past, you know, 100 years that have been done on that, um, just showing how powerful, like, um, how powerful the, con- the, the, the urge to conform can be. And that, um, of course, there is a, there or there are kind of evolutionary and rational explanations for why this is the case, but it's still... Like you still might find yourself in a crowd that's tearing someone apart, and you find yourself, you know, contributing to it, and mm-hmm. only afterwards you're kind of like, oh wow, you know, what just what what came over me, right? Because that is kind of the power of of the mob when you find yourself in one, and so I think the probably it would be even if it is potentially wrong, it would be more advantageous to assume that you would be get caught up in the the movements of the crowds than to take the position that oh well you know I'd be the one that you know wouldn't go along with it because as long as you just think that you that you'll be the one that goes along with it then um you know there's the chance that you might not and that you will have done nothing to prevent that from happening but if you actively kind of think of your own um potential weakness and inability to withstand the effects of the crowd maybe through that um, exe- through that kind of procedure in your own mind and like the contemplation of it, you can get to the point where you wouldn't be influenced by the crowd. Right, and I, I think that's the important distinction too is that that's when the crowd becomes the crowd is when that psychological change takes place mm-hmm. and now there's, you know, you know, 2,000 people that have one mind. Mm-hmm. And so then at that point, you are, you are, by definition, you are an irrational, you're an irrational human being because mm-hmm. you are, it's not your mind, you're the tool for the crowd at this point. Mm-hmm. And the crowd is, I mean, I've never met it. I don't know its, you know, I don't know its yeah. pedigree. I don't know, what, you know, if it, if it, you know, gives two uh, craps about, you know, you or me, mm-hmm. but the crowd has its own 
you know, whatever reasons for doing what it does. Mm -hmm. And as you look through history, you know, it's, it's not pretty usually. Mm -hmm. And you're, you know, if you, you get your, you know, karmically tied to this crowd for whatever, and you get swept away in it, then, you know, there are repercussions, there are Mm -hmm. consequences for all of our actions Mm -hmm. and choices. Well, I wanted to read a few more quotes. Um, maybe this is a group taken from various chapters, and it's it's just, uh, I collected them together because it's talking about socialism. And I thought it was interesting to look at these quotes from the perspective of just history. He was writing this at the end of the 19th century, so before the, you know, before the communist revolution in, in Russia and before basically communism kind of took over, you know, masses of countries in the 20th century, but also for today, where there's like kind of a a new type of socialism and uh, a new type of leftism based on the same kind of dynamics that is playing itself out in like, um, you know, the the SJW world and the kind of radical leftist world. So um, in a section on education, um, he just, he basically, he did not have anything good to say about the French system of education. He basically said it was kind of like the, um, the Chinese Mandarin system of education, basically where it's a, like a highly specialized form of education to to create new um, like magistrates, essentially, um, like public servants. And that, so you you train all these people, you go to school and you, and it's this just memorization of textbooks, basically. You have to memorize the texts to take your, your examinations. Then once the examinations were over, well, you know, a tiny percentage of the people would actually pass and, you know, get their positions. And the re- and even those people would you know forget was, what what was on their test. We can see that nowadays in in the education system to a large degree in the in our countries where it's basically here's a bunch of facts to memorize and then you get tested on them. And who remembers any of that, right? Well, he actually liked the American and British education systems at the time because it seems like back then they were more practical. Like so, he he writes that the the engineer, for example, is trained in a workshop. I believe he's talking about the United States, and never at a school. A method which allows each individual reaching the level of his intelligence permits of. He becomes a workman or a foreman if he can get no further, an engineer if his aptitudes take him as far. This manner of proceedings is much more democratic and of much greater benefit to society than that of making the whole career of an individual depend on an examination, lasting a few hours and undergone at the age of 19 or 20. And he basically says this system of education, like was in France at the time, and you know, I don't know. I think maybe it's still the you know still the system of education in France today, and it seems like we're getting closer in you know North America to that system uh, today as well. Um, but that it basically creates gra- like uh, it creates the breeding ground for revolt among the the people educated, because you have all these people who are educated and who then feel entitled to be part of that educated class, and when they don't get there, they get resentful. And um, and have nothing better to do but then you know to think of revolution because well they're not trained to do anything else either right because uh, they don't have any useful skills they haven't got they haven't like learned a trade they basically have these degrees and I, I'm using like the the like our Western perspective now they have they have these degrees that they've worked you know years for and spent a ton of money on and they have nothing to show for it they haven't entered the you know the ruling class they haven't uh, they haven't gotten uh, the position that they want and so you know what's left for them but to maybe you just will either work at a you know a burger place or you know become a revolutionary. So with that in mind, he says, the mass of the indifferent and the neutral has become progressively an army of the discontented, ready to obey all the suggestions of utopians and rhetoricians. It is in the schoolroom that socialists and anarchists are found nowadays. 
and that the way is being paved for the approaching period of decadence for the Latin peoples. So today it is in the schoolroom in the universities that socialists and anarchists are found today. Um, and yeah, I thought that was kind of a, a, a prescient thing that he was saying is essentially the, the, it's in the education system that, well, it's the education system that basically breeds like revolution um, because that is, well, the, the education system is, is one of the means or the one of, yeah, one of the remote um, factors of society that acts as the ground, you know, into which um, the, the, the specific persuasive opinions are then planted and which grow um, into like a crowd behavior leading to a revolution, for instance. But then a uh, couple more just on the socialism, then I'll, I think you want to comment, Corey. So he says, the reason why socialism is so powerful today is that it constitutes the last illusion that is still vital. And he says that that last illusion is to promise mankind happiness. So this is essentially what Jordan Peterson has been saying for the last couple of years, is that there's this utopian idea. It is like the promise of, of this great system where there is equality, where all the good things, where all the good things come to being and all the bad things cease. And that is naturally, uh, you know, an, an attractive idea. And because all of the past institutions have kind of like, we, we societies, will, when Le Bon was writing, had lost their touch with, you know, those original institutions, those original beliefs, like, uh, you know, like the church, um, they, um, well, there's, again, this is one of these kind of contradictions. The, the belief, they lost, the, the belief had lost its power. But at the same time, well, so the belief had lost its power, and that left open like socialism, for instance, as like the new, the new thing to fill the hole that that religion uh, used to occupy. But at the same time, he says that um, you can never actually get rid of these institutions. Like whenever um, like a revolution takes place, for instance, to get rid of of uh, a negatively perceived institution, the revolutionaries will then proceed to reinstitute that institution under a new name with that is actually more oppressive and worse than the institution they're trying to replace. But mm -hmm. there's some quotes that maybe, like, well, after these ones, we, I'll get to those because those are really good too. And then also on socialism, the most gigantic of these experiments was the French Revolution. To find out, was it, to find out that a society is not to be refashioned from top to bottom in accordance with the dictates of pure reason, it was necessary that several millions of men should be massacred and that Europe should be profoundly disturbed for a period of 20 years. That, so that wasn't specifically about, about socialism, but it applies to like, the communist experience of the, of the 20th century. And this gets to the point of, um, well, this is why I think Jordan Peterson is wrong about one of the things he says. He's, like, so he always says that, oh, we, we, we tried that in the 20th century. It didn't work. Like, we, should have, we should have learned our lesson. But according to Laban, that's not the way it works. Like, there's no lesson that can be learned from, from history. Like, each lesson is new for each period of time that it, you know, that it comes up in. So we can look back and we can, we can look at, like, the, the socialist experiments. And, I mean, yes, from the, from the perspective of pure reason, you know, we can then look back and say, oh, we should learn from that. But in practice, it's like, that's not the way things work. It's like each, each generation is presented with, with problems um, that can only be solved by that generation. And uh, you'll get a few like academics and smart people who will be like, "Oh, you're just repeating these like these trends in the past," but that's not really going to do anything. And again, you're not going to convince people of that by giving them this logical, you know, explanation of history um, and the and the dangers of repeating this. Like, it's it's not going to like they're not your target audience for that kind of message. 
And the only, so at least potentially the only way to get across your message would be to use the, the means of the leader of a crowd. And that wouldn't take the form of, you know, telling people about the, you know, how bad socialists were in the 20th century or, you know, how bad the French revolution was. And, you know, it's just not going to work maybe. Well, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, it sounds like, you know, just going off what we discussed today, you would probably, you would just agree with them and then you would just suddenly, just suddenly change everything until, until it was sane again, (laughs) until, you know, until you weren't trying to experiment on millions of people at one time, which is such a strange thing for, you know, like these people, they don't like to, you don't want to experiment on dogs, you know, with like lipstick or mascara, but when it comes to an entire nation, then why not? Let's give it a shot. Let's experiment. If it doesn't work, then, you know, whoops. And then that would be the, like like LeBon would say, that's the, the duty of the statesman to agree with the crowd and say, okay, let's try it out. And then you basically just rename the existing re- institutions exactly. <laughs> using the words that they want and continue to continue doing things the way they've always been done. And then the crowd is like, um, um, we're in utopia. Yeah. Oh, oh, great. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. The crowd calms down and everything continues on as normal. Yeah. Maybe that's the way. Well, this is, uh, this is Barack Obama after George Bush, <laughs> right? Y- yeah. yeah. You know, uh, every, you know, black president, progressive, bombs the shit out of half the world, you know, anyway, uh, it's, it's a big con, but you know, what's, what's interesting also about what you were just reading Harrison is that, uh, and and discussing is that there's, um, a a great deal of arrogance. Every, everybody who has this utopian vision thinks, uh, that they're really the first ones in a sense, you know, maybe they have some historical knowledge, but because it, by, by the mere fact of it's them saying it, it's them speaking to everybody, it's them who are possessed by these ideas and, um, and, and are seeking to persuade others about them, that it would somehow magically, wishfully thinking, uh, be the, the key to, to actually creating these uh, you know, so-called utopian uh, realities for people, which are when you really look at it, when you really listen to the policies, are so narrow, are so short-sighted, are so appealing to only a very small percentage of people and wouldn't even serve those people objectively and practically uh, for reasons that they don't necessarily understand. Um, so, yeah, every socialist would seem to be reinventing, reinventing socialism and, and completely discarding the 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 mindset and the the kind of uh conceit that that every socialist leader had before them in in thinking that they had the answer um which you know even if there was some truth to it and and good intentions involved almost always uh with few exceptions managed to get distorted and uh subverted and and changed into you know like you were saying an even worse version of of what existed before uh meet the old boss same as the new boss yeah or meet the new boss same as the old boss yeah there is no ultimate answer to every problem you know because as soon as you answer a problem as it's been pointed out a million times you're going to have four more problems crop up there is no utopia on the planet that that we live in and the sooner that people you know the you accept that the easier the easier things become because there's always going to be a problem you prepare for it you anticipate problems and then you develop the tool sets 
in order to to tackle those problems mm-hmm. and that's how humanity evolves that's how we've got to where we're at and it's it's the, this whole idea of getting the answer is just uh it's just the the wishful thinking that you can just go back to sleep we can just everything will be fine it'll everything will be done we can just go to sleep and mm-hmm. and you know dream about cakes and unicorns mm-hmm. and for some people a lot of people that's that's an interesting thing but those are the people who make it to to the future yeah. where <laughs> things are better <laughs> where we evolve those people devolve mm-hmm. as we see viciously every day so there's like two extremes for approaching this like there's the extreme of the utopians the the utopians the utopianists what would you call them mm-hmm. um who want the easy answer right or and think they have the answer they think this is the solution to all the problems and then there's the other extreme of like just pure conservatism mm-hmm. where um just accept the status quo accept things as is because you know that they can't change because you know the utopia is never possible um and both of those are extremes and both of them are wrong i think you know those are the extremes of openness you know, uh, like liberal openness and then like conservative, like traditionality and, you know, conservatism, like keep things the same and, and no change whatsoever. So one leads to stagnation, the other leads to chaos. But then there is that kind of middle ground um, that, that you know, all kinds of thinkers talk about the, you know, and, and politicians too, like savvy politicians like Putin, that like the evolutionary approach as opposed to the revolutionary approach and opposed to just, um, uh, you know, stagnant traditionalism. And that, um, so, well, Laban gives an example, like he writes that, uh, um, a people is an organism created by the past and like every other organism, it can only be modified by slow hereditary accumulations. The difficulty, and it is an immense difficulty, is to find a proper equilibrium between stability and variability. Um, the ideal for a people is in consequence to preserve the institutions of the past merely changing them insensibly and little by little. This idea is difficult to realize. He gives the example of um, like the, the British and the Romans doing it the best, you know, in, in his opinion, his judgment of history. But one piece of advice, I think, like to avoid those, those um, extremes would be to take the, like the advice of Jordan Peterson, where he says, because there is an impulse to to want things to be better. There is an impulse to see problems and want them to be solved, right? And to to ignore that and to just um, write that off and just just fall would be to just fall back into the other extreme and just to accept what is and and that's it. But like Dabrowski would say, it's like um, just accepting what is is to be just totally adjusted to the world as it is and that's to be integrated at a, at a low level. Like there has to be some kind of inter, inner conflict. Like if you don't look at the world and see something that really like um, makes you angry or or sad like to, to a large degree, then there's something wrong with you. So what's the solution? Well, the solution would be to find a problem to try to fix and not to like not to have a solution that you then apply to a problem that you find, but to find a problem and then devote your life to understanding that problem and trying to fix it. And that will entail taking into account a lot of what is, right? So the answer will probably never be, well, let's just tear the government down and institute a new one. That'll never be the answer because we, because that never works. You know, by the very nature of organisms, that won't work. The only approach that will work is, evolu- is, is an evolutionary approach. So that's just a naive utopian ideal that like teenagers have. And that unfortunately some adults 
have as well. But to actually take responsibility, you know, is to look at one problem and then work really hard towards finding the solution that will work. And that will mean that you'll find you'll you'll come up with tons of ideas that won't work and that you should be responsible enough not to put those into practice and then um, find, you know, just, well, work really hard to finding something that seems like it will probably work. And you've got like a ton of uh, a ton of data to look towards to help you in that uh, in that direction. And it would probably get if more people took that approach, we'd probably solve a lot more problems because this there are a lot of solutions out there that are just ignored Be- because of the kind of utopian ideal uh, idealism and the the um, like the abdication of political leaders from their responsibility to actually um, govern um, by their own kind of intelligence and conscience as opposed to just following the whims of their constituencies that um, that the solutions are there like even just if you you take an example like um, when we did the show on insight and we were talking about like the the self-esteem like epidemic that was allegedly going on in like the 80s where people were like oh well, we need to solve this epi- epi- this self-esteem crisis well, the data was already there showing that there was no self-esteem pro, uh, crisis in the first place. And so, essentially, we would solve a lot by realizing that the, a lot of the problems people see aren't actually problems. That's one thing. <laughs> okay, great. We don't have to do anything about it anyway. We're already on the right track. Um, and there are also, um, like, uh, in a lot of government policy decisions, they will, they will just choose, obviously, the wrong answer simply because they have, like, a lobby group for instance, for, for example, it may, may not be a lobby group. Maybe they're just idiots. But um, like pushing them towards a specific solution to a problem, like a real problem, that if you asked like a, a group of experts, like let's say like 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 specialized experts, like let's say in in like the field of psychology, for instance, instead of asking like um, people on Wall Street what the, what you're going to do about a certain thing, dealing with an issue that's actually like psychology you actually ask the psychologists and they'll be able to say, oh, well, we've actually done these studies on these types of interventions and this, this kind of thing doesn't work. It's, it's like um, and, um, with Jonathan Haidt and his new book, Coddling of the American Mind, like the whole kind of um, um, like safe space culture and trigger warnings things, like the, a lot of that is going on in the universities and it's even like the, those kind of um, ideas and policies are even entering like legislation in some areas with like... Um, like hate speech laws and things like that. Whereas if they were to just ask the actual psychologists, they'd say, no, you know, even if we agree that there's a problem, that will actually make things worse. Like the, the ideas, that the, the, the solutions that you're proposing are actually going to make things worse. Because the way to solve um, like negative emotions like that and um, um, like adversity is not to shield that person from the things that upset them. It's to slowly expose them to the things that they accept, uh, that, that, uh, upset them so that they become resilient, and that's the only that's the thing that clinical that clinically works. That is like the proven practice. And so, like if if you are ta- if you are tasking yourself with eliminating the the discomfort caused by the things that offend you, then if you really take responsibility and look at the issue, then you're going to that's going to necessitate some research. And like I said, there are some ex- there are some examples, some problems where the research has already been done and you can find the solution. The solution already exists, but no one's actually putting it into practice because they haven't just taken that first step of just responsibly taking on a task and um, like honestly and, and like with, on- with authenticity looking at that problem without any preconceptions 
and looking at the data and saying, okay, well, actually, look, this is what is actually going to work. It's been proven to actually work, so let's do this. Mm-hmm. Right, that that ties right back into what we're talking about, our leadership culture, and the fact that the leadership in these places that sponsor safe safe spaces are just they're just going along with the whims of the public Mm -hmm. because that's the easiest thing to do because that's the safest thing to do because it's a hysterical time you don't know you're going to lose your job because somebody says that you're a you're an evil tyrant because you you want people to to show up and take their tests Mm -hmm. you're like no no um no let's just you know bend to the whims of of a bunch of children and and then i can keep my job it's safer for me that way either that or you're you know, there's some predators out there that just want to turn all the, like a whole generation into a bunch of weak willed little sissies because they're easier to manipulate. I mean, yeah. either way, it's, it's, uh, I, I, I really, I do think that that, that has a lot to do with our leadership, the leadership culture in the U S and I mean, I mean, probably elsewhere too, but it's really pronounced on, in on the a, U.S. on a geopolitical level. Yeah. You have, you know, more than half of Congress and the Senate uh, going along with with every Russophobic policy uh, that um, that's informed by the the current thinking uh, in Washington or non thinking, as it were, it, it's it's an interpretation of every act uh, of of defense and and just uh, just a kind of evolution of of Russia into this kind of viable, um, you know, taking no no crap from other. Uh, interests and 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 other nations and giving it this kind of uh negative spin and interpretation uh how else to explain how so many uh in washington are all on board with what is essentially a insane um uh, you know mindset on on what russia is and what the nature of of their um of their goals and their intentions are uh, so yeah, when when you mentioned uh, the the crisis of political leadership in the U.S., Corey, it, that's exactly what comes to mind. Right, and it's just it's not just political leadership; it's just all forms of leadership. You know, whether it's parenting or like we were talking about at universities and and so on and so forth, all the way up the the line. It's this uh, it's just this loss of like I guess what Laban would say the loss of the the strength of the of the race. Um, you know, and probably a, a symptom of of this rising incompetence, you know, maybe some form of negative selection that's taken place over, over the years, where more competent people are pushed out by more uh, ridiculous types of policies. They're just turned off by all of these types of jobs and the kinds of things that they'd have to go through to get them. And yeah, the that that is a it's a really pronounced crisis that just this I don't know it, it continues to show signs of getting worse. Well, unless, uh, unless we have any other thoughts on uh, Laban's The Crowd, uh, we're going to bring this show to its conclusion. We thank you guys for listening and tuning in. We really appreciate uh, your feedback, uh, your comments on, uh, on SOT. Um, don't forget to tune in to the Health and Wellness Show next Friday and Newsreel on Sundays with Joe and Neil. Uh, and uh, thank you guys for really really interesting discussion today um there's certainly a lot to consider when we're when we're looking at all of these social movements that are popping up and uh revolts of of all kinds some of them uh justifiable some of them uh uh certifiable 
Um, and uh, yeah, appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Be a good persuader. Take care. Bye. Bye.